everybody. Welcome to The Lawyer's Daughter. I'm Jennifer Carroll. And I realized as we're coming up on sentencing, which it's August 13th and we're getting close, it's a week before, oh, actually one week out before I have to do my statement. And there's been a lot of stuff going on as I've shared with you. But somehow in the whole whatever of doing my podcast and everything, I never actually formally spoke about being a suspect. It's, it's uh, possibly one of the biggest things in this whole case for me personally, because it had such a dramatic effect on who I am and how I am and why the choices I make now are so important to me. So if you go back and listen to the end in the news recordings, I do talk about this a little bit because it was part of um, what happened right after the arrest. And then Joe Elsip was arrested and we went through that trial. And honestly, this the suspect thing, me being suspected, happened really within the first 48 hours of learning of the case, of learning of the murders. So the murders, we learned about it on a Sunday. I'm pretty sure, I don't know exactly, but I, I wanna say I'm pretty sure that I was in for that polygraph test like by Tuesday. It feels like it was that week right away. Um, you need to know, I thought they were insane because I had just turned 18. I'm five foot two. I have no strength to speak of. And at that time, none of us knew Charlene had been raped. I, now I ask all the time, like, what were you guys doing? What were you thinking? Why in the hell did I have to go through this? Because the thing is, is that the polygraph test itself wasn't all that bad. That, well, it, to me, it seemed more like just nonsense. Like, what are we doing here? Um, but the reality is, is that the shame of the whole thing lasted with me for a lifetime. Um, that's butter trying to get out. Then I shut the door. Okay, so the minute I shut the door, you know that cat was going to show up. I want to get out. Okay, so this, so okay, let's go back. So it's, it's I'm 18 years old. I found out my dad and Charlene are dead. It's a Sunday. The next day, um, basically, all the news blew up. So that was crazy. And I think it was the day after the Tuesday that I was in doing this polygraph test. So you, but you, but I want you to come with me because I want you to realize that. It was absolutely inane in my mind at that moment and within that short of a time frame it was some crazy crap that they thought i did it but the part i didn't talk about but the part that went in the part that hurt forever and the part that made me who i am today is the shame of it <clears throat> so as you as you might imagine, I'm going to go through the story here in a second, but the shame of it was so much more significant and lasted decades. It is why right now, today, who I am is I constantly push myself to be as authentic as possible. There are times when there are things I can't share and I'm forever verifying and, and validating to make sure if I'm allowed to share information or not. But if I do share information, you need to know from me because of my past, I have done everything, everything in my power to make sure it's as truthful as I could make it be. That doesn't mean I don't make mistakes, because I do, but it's not my intention. My intention is to be truthful. And, it, and it's a, that authenticity is kind of my holy grail of who I am. So you'll see me get upset about certain things. It's probably because it gets, it creeps up on don't lie. And, I, and I'm not naive. I know people have to lie. We all have to lie. There's times that we all have to lie. But I think some of that lying even can be done in an effort to be authentic, which is to protect someone or to know that, that um, telling the truth might cause damage. There's even a thing going on right now with what they're going to share with us post-trial. So 
I believe I've shared with you guys that they told me, they being the prosecutors have told us, and Cheryl has told me, that she will absolutely share information with me that would have been made public had there been a trial. That said, there are still some things that cannot be made public. Some of that has to do with, um, in case there are any other charges against anyone else, or, or, that's kind of the less likely one but the other one that i've been told and why we might not see some things is that by seeing them it would hurt someone else or by knowing it it would hurt someone else so i take that seriously i don't want to cause more harm this thing the ripple effects of this case have been so massive i mean this is truly a unique journey and i know that i don't mean to ever abstract it into something that might be something like somebody else goes through other than the feelings, because this thing has just been, you know, it's the Titanic of nightmares right up there. There's just been a few of us with this kind of big giant crap going on. So let me tell you about this being a suspect, because you're going to hear me talk a little bit about it in my witness uh, or victim impact statement. I get that wrong every day. My victim impact statement. I'm going to talk about this because really, if we look at what one of the impacts of this case on me personally, and I don't even know, to this day, I don't even know if my brothers really understand what I went through and what it was like, because they they were um, three and a half and five years younger than I, and those are important years. This isn't like we were all in our 40s, ha ha ha, we all get it, and have a Coke and a smile. No, this was when we were kids, so really your ability to, to process complicated information, you know, only gets better as you get older. So at the time, at 18, when I went through this deep, deep shame, when it started, and then I went, and then I went on to college, so they weren't around me. But at that time, you know, Jay was 15 and Gary was 12. Um, and so th I don't think there's a way for them to have understood what I was going through and what that meant. I don't think I understood it then, how, how lasting the wound would be and how much I would not understand how the adults in my town based on my reputation in town at the time how they were so quickly able to call and turn me in that i i don't know that i'll ever understand that and i and i and um that's what happens and the thing is i don't know that i wouldn't do the same thing myself today if i thought somebody was actually a suspect i might have thought it through a little bit more and thought about well this is a kid but but again, we didn't have all the details of the crime. Um, you're going to lose me on thinking about this, but we didn't have all the details of the crime. That's an important part. This is really, really early on. Two people are dead. It, the, sh the crime is freaking shocking. And all I know is everybody was doing their best to try to figure out who could have done it. And the, and the crime looked intimate and it looked emotional. And I think it was both of those things, but it it didn't look like a stranger had done it. Um, it's of course not what everybody thinks. We don't think about strangers. So anyway, okay, so 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 you once again understand because um I don't and I also don't think my mom understood the depth of the shame. Again, I, I left for college in the fall, went to one semester at USC and then I went to Davis. And at Davis I kind of had a nervous breakdown in the spring semester of that year, which would have been one year to the date. And if you know anything about PTSD and all that stuff, that's generally when it hits you is about a year later. And I definitely had a rough, rough semester at UC Davis. Um, the good news is, is I recovered. Um, my roommate from back then is living with me now, which is a crack up. She still refuses to set her alarm clock for when she's going to really get up in the morning. And so I have to listen to that snooze alarm a thousand times through the wall. But some things never change 40 years later. All right. So let me tell you the story. And then, um, and 
If y'all want to ask me questions about it, come on over to Twitter or uh, you can try on Facebook. Those are probably the better places to reach me. I'm behind on email, so I apologize in advance. But if you have questions, that's fine. I just wanted to share this part because it's going to be important to the story that you hear later as I go and do my talk um, next week. Okay, so um, one of the most shameful things about the murder of my stepmom and, and my dad was being a suspect. I can't believe it happened. I still can't believe the police thought I could do something so awful. My mom was my alibi that night. I can so remember. She she failed to be my alibi, but she was supposed to be my alibi. I remember coming to the house. We had just like a uh, four-bedroom um, that my mom bought on her own. I was so proud of her. She earned the money to buy that house. That was not a divorce cast-off. She actually did it herself. Um, so she bought her first house, which was our house on Sutter Street. If you have to Google it, it's 6103 Sutter Street in Ventura. And it was a four-bedroom house with my brother's bedroom by the garage, Jay's bedroom by the garage, and everybody else back down the hall. And um, when I came in that night, because I typically worked, I, I worked a lot. I worked uh, Beverly Fabrics. I worked at Arthur Features Fish and Chips, which was like the only one in California, and it was good. And I worked at the Ventura Theater. Um, with my friends. And so I was, I often come home late because I'd be working. And I also worked a lot at the school, although not right then. This was in February, so chances are I was at work work. Came home, saw my mom in this big black beanbag chair, which were all the rage in the late 70s. Beanbag chairs were still a thing. She was sitting plopped in front of the TV and she had a glass of scotch on the rocks, which is not typical for her because she doesn't like to dilute her scotch with water. You don't, you know, you don't want to ruin that scotch. But she had her glass of scotch. She's watching soap, which for anybody who has never watched the reruns of soap, it's great. But the best part is how Bert could make himself disappear by just snapping his fingers and re-disappear. I've always wanted that ability to do that. Bert was the best. She's watching that show. I come in, I go, hey, mom, I'm home. She goes, meh, whatever moms say when your kids come home and they're basically adult kids. And I went back to my room grabbed the, the landline phone that had a really long cord that would stretch to go down the hall. And I called my friend Kathy because I'm sure I had to catch up. But Kathy and I then jabber-jawed on that phone probably for 90 minutes. And that's all that was. And then I went to sleep because that's kind of how we rolled back then. The boys were already in bed for school. And, um, and this is... Um, this was fr that Friday night, the, the night that I needed an alibi, the Friday night, that, that's when I came home. So yeah, they didn't even have school the next day. Next day was a weekend, it was Saturday. So yeah, people were in bed, people were ready to go it was in, later in the evening. So my mom did not remember that I came home that night. So she blew it. I did not have an alibi. Uh, I have forgiven her for that, but there are times, especially after that second margarita, where I will occasionally skewer her with her lack of I go, mom, 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 God, I've watched enough TV to know how you do this. You always, always lie for your family members. Then you can backpedal later. But the first thing you always tell the police is, oh, no, they were home and they were fine. How many episodes of SBU or of Law and Order have we watched? And we know that's what you're always supposed to do as the parent. First you lie, then you figure it out. Not my mom. She's too busy watching soap. Okay, so here we are. Um, I, when, what happened next? in terms of this polygraph test, in terms of the lie detector and being a suspect, is basically my father's fault. And that's because, um, it's not because he was murdered, it's because he taught me how to be a jackass. One of the ways we sparred, and I think you know by now, we started sparring as soon as I could 
utter words. I, I was trained to be able to debate him and argue with him and hold my ground. But one of the ways we sparred also was about being funny and finding things funny and finding inappropriate things funny and being sarcastic. I remember when a little kid taught me the word sarcasm in third grade because I was the poster child for it. Imagine that. Uh, anyway, so I, of course, because I didn't think it was serious, honestly. I mean, we knew it was real police and everything, but I knew I didn't do it. And I also knew it was the craziest thing I'd ever heard. So again, in that first 48 hours, I'm kind of just coping with the idea of this. And like, you're basically, I just kept thinking, you guys are so crazy. Why would this be what you do? But um, it happened anyway. So I'm in the room. It's a small room. It looks like most of the rooms that you might see on television back then where there were three walls around you and then over here was the glass wall and behind the glass i figured there were law enforcement officers because that's where they stand behind the glass we've seen this right this is not a surprise to us and i knew my mom would be in there and i knew she would be back kind of behind me in the least optimal spot because why would they put the mom in the most optimal spot so i leaned back there and i winked at her Again, I'm a jackass. I already have set this up so you know that that's the case. Um, in the middle of the room, uh, there was a table and chairs. That, that, so it, it was kind of right here to the side of me because I had to face the wall. So the table and chairs were here. And then this, this um, my chair is really noisy, but it was a metal, just metal utilitarian 1960s office stuff. Sat in that chair, and then I saw, and and so it was a blank wall in front of me, and then on the table was the lie detector. I, um, if you are reading this in print, I've tried to click, uh, provide a, a link to a photograph of it, but it, they kind of all look the same at this point. They haven't changed that much in all these decades. The laws around them have changed, but the device itself hasn't changed that much. It looked like something I was used to seeing on Charlie's Angels or the Rockford Files. Rockford Files being my favorite of all time. Uh, I could see the little drum that fed the paper and the needle that moved back and forth and all that. And the, and the machine at the, when we first got started was off and as we got settled. So I had, my birthday is on February 5th, 5th and they died on the 13th of March. So I had just turned 18 and been an adult for just a little over a month. And I knew I should be taking this seriously. But again, like it keeps emphasizing, it was almost impossible to because it was so completely insane what we were doing. Um, the very idea that I was responsible for taking their life was crazy to me. And uh, it, it, it just didn't, it just didn't make any sense, right? So, but I had always been a voracious reader and I was notorious for grabbing the adult books out of my dad's nightstand. I think I've talked about this before. I would go get his books and he had good books. And one of the good books was Mario Puzo's The Godfather, where I learned about <clears throat> sex, well, let's just say uh, hot sex that I didn't really, I knew mechanically how sex worked. I did not know about this kind of sex until I read the Mario Puzo book. The point of that is not, not that that was not my best primer in the world for learning about that kind of sex. The point is that I knew uh, from those books, that genre, I tend to like crime and drama, that it, um, the family members were always considered suspects at the beginning of a murder case. So I kind of at least knew there was a norm for me being questioned. I just didn't know why my brothers weren't questioned, why my mom maybe had a little more motive than I. No, it just was just me. So I tried to understand how the police thought this was supposed to have worked. And now you have to bear with me here because this is what I figured they thought they had me like this. 
I got my Honda Express moped because those little wheels I had then, it's a little moped, unless I borrowed my mom's car. And that little thing had a little tiny, I want to say maybe it was a 35cc engine. It was a tiny little engine and it really did go. And I drove that thing up the street to my dad's house, which would have been all uphill. And I just need to tell you that Honda Express did not like hills, especially with a human on the Honda Express. Just did not like hills. Um, then supposedly I, when I got there, I grabbed a log off the wood pile off the back of the house, which by the way, I never went, even, I don't even think I can describe that side of the house to you because I never went on that side of the house. That was kind of the boy's side because it was where the hill was and there was really no furniture or anything over there that was on the side of the garage. When you look at one of those pictures I have, it's literally the side of that house. It's the dead zone. I would have gotten a log off the wood pile, didn't even know they had a wood pile. I would have gone into his house where they were asleep and somehow managed to bludgeon them. And then I would have left. Now, I don't want to go into a lot of detail here. And at the time, I didn't know all the detail. But just blood alone, I would have been soaking in blood. Soaking. I didn't know that. Like I said, I know that now as a 58-year-old woman, I did not know that as an 18-year-old there. So what I really thought is I would have come home. I didn't really think about the blood, to be perfectly honest, because I wasn't there and I didn't know anything about it. Climbed into bed and waited then on the down low for somebody to discover the bodies. And then I would have had to have been the most a brilliant actress who could have reacted with complete surprise and shock like I did when I found out that they had been killed. So that's like, if you can imagine now being a cynical teenager, go back there. Do you know how stupid all of that sounds? Do you know how unbelievably insane that sounds? That is, that is the attitude that I brought to this. Not mature, maybe not very thoughtful, maybe completely nuts. I, I have to say all those things are on the table, but it's exactly how I existed. Um, so instead of me dealing with this, on taking it incredibly seriously, because again, I thought it was a farce, I did what I knew how to do, and I used my jackass powers to protect me. And this is, so we're, we're, I'm going to take you back to that room now. We're back to the polygraph test. The, my chair's facing the wall, so just like I'm facing you now, I'm looking ahead of me, and it's a plain old wall. To my right's the table and the tester, who I'm sure had a better title than tester, but I don't know what he was. I'm sure he was an investigator or a polygraph expert or something. And he hooked me up to the, the machine. He put two um, straps. One kind of goes above your boobs. You can see me very well. One goes under your boobs. So I don't know how they do that in men. I'm going to guess maybe the same. Maybe there's just the free the nipple zone. So you're under and over. And those are measuring how you breathe. So they're taking in your respirations. And essentially it's like um, tubing. So it moves when you move as you breathe in and out and in and out. So imagine that kind of action happening. Then they put on a blood pressure cuff. And supposedly if I had a rise in blood pressure, it would signal that I was anxious or um, th all this does is measure a bunch of physical physical um, responses. And it doesn't necessarily know if you're telling the truth or lying, although there's a correlation between lying and certain physical responses. So increased rep respiration, <laughs> probably lying because I'm anxious. Um, increased blood pressure, probably lying because I'm anxious. And then the last one they put on you is the little uh, Velcro thingies, which now is like the cool chomper they put on you at the doctor's office that tells it if your O2 levels okay. These are for galvanic skin response. These are like little um, Velcro tapey things they put around your fingers 
I don't remember if it's these fingers or these fingers, but they were on my fingers and um, they were measuring the level of moisture in my skin. Again, supposedly if you sweat, you are having anxiety, therefore you're lying. I honestly, I think because I thought it was so silly, I was pretty calm. I remember being very calm and I didn't, I wasn't taking it seriously. I was like, let's just go on this ride. I'll see where it ends up. So the examiner handed me a piece of paper and a pen and I was asked to write down a number between one and nine on the sheet of paper. And so I took the piece of paper and I drew the number three. Very simple. I do my numbers curvy. That might be important fact for you to know. I don't do the top, hard top three. I do a curvy three. Um, and he said it was great and he taped it on the wall in front of me. So now I'm sitting in the chair with him over here to the side of me and, and straight in front of me is that piece of paper with the number three on it. And you're not going to believe this because this really wasn't my plan. But he, he started first with, he turned on the machine and made this humming noise. He asked me to breathe normally. And he, I think he was probably calibrate, calibrating the device. And then I, I, meanwhile, was staring at the number on the wall, didn't know what else to do. It was the only thing to look at. And I don't know at all how to engage with him because he was very quiet and very uh, manly doing his device manly stuff. And so I'm looking at that number three. And um, I looked back, you know, I, was, I, I knew mom was watching. I gave her a little wink. I, uh, I, she asked me later, how did I know she was there? And I'm like, mom, how, where else would you have been? It's the only logical place. Um, this is how I have perpetually driven my mom mad for her whole life is that I do stuff that she just goes, oh my God, oh my God, that's my daughter. Yeah, it's true. But it's their fault. They raised me this way. Okay, so he, the, the examiner regained my attention and we started. He said, okay, Jennifer, let's see if we can get this working. We're going to do a test. So what happened next really wasn't a plan. I didn't have a master plan. I hadn't done research. It's not like today where you can Google everything. If I did want to learn about lie detector tests, I would have had to haul my little booty down the library on my little Honda Express to go learn about lie detector tests. I didn't. I just had, you know, the knowledge we all had from watching TV. So I also thought I was smarter than an adults. And that was also because of my father who absolutely uh, reinforced that belief. And, and many times it was a delusion and other times I was dead right. Um, but I, so I, I tended to not respect them for their authority. I tended to respect adults who earned it, not necessarily because they were people in authority because I don't respect authority all that well. Anyway, I did something I did not plan to do. I lied. Here's how it works. I wanted to know if I could beat the machine because that seemed like a reasonable game for me to play. Um, he told me, here's what I'd like you to do. When I ask you a question, I want you to simply answer yes or no. So this is really important part of the lie detector process. It has to be a, an affirmative or a negative, yes or no. It can't be, well, sometimes that's not gonna work. You have to absolutely be polarized in your answers. They write, they write the questions to elicit those kind of answers from you specifically for that reason. He said, I don't want you to shake your head or say anything else. It must be yes or no answer. Do you understand? And I immediately, I believe, said, I understand. And in my head thought, this is a game. And I said, yeah. Okay. He said, then did I ask you to write a number, of, a write a number on a piece of paper? And of course I said, yes. Did you write a five? And I thought, hmm, he knows I didn't write a five. I said, no. And then in my head, and this is the important part, I didn't know this is how you can beat a test, but it happened to work for me, as I said, 
in my head, no, I wrote an eight. So now this is the important part of the game because, because I write my threes basically like incomplete eights, it was absolutely possible for me to keep seeing an eight on the wall. In fact, as I sat there realizing what we were gonna do next, I just kept looking at it thinking it's an eight. The other thing that they cannot control when you do these lie detector tests, and there's some interesting links, uh, links out there on how to beat a test, but one of the things they can't control is what you tell yourself in your head. So by saying no, and in my head, I wrote, I wrote an eight. I was reinforcing what I needed to see, but I was also um, basically creating something that was calming to me because I thought that's, I'm telling myself the truth. I'm just trying to put my mind over the physical matter. So he said, um, okay, did you write a seven? In my head, no, it's an eight. And then finally he asked, did you write a three? And I of course said, no, it's an eight in my head. And that's when I looked over and I could tell he was frustrated because he could not tell I was lying. I didn't have any changes. Yeah, for me, I felt like I, it was a victory, right? I beat the machine because I was so insulted that machine was even in my life and what was I doing here and why would you ever have an 18 year old ding dong high school person in your office doing a lie detector? Like it just was so many reasons crazy. Why did my mom even let me for that matter? Why did I not have a lawyer? We all know, call your lawyer first. Don't admit to do these things. But again, I'm in the land of bizarro. I think this is all just weird. So we went through the rest of the lie detector test. He asked me horrible questions, some general questions about um, Lyman and Charlene. And then, of course, the horrible questions like, did you kill Lyman? No. Did you call, kill Charlene? No. Those two questions are part of the shame that I bear because I can't believe that I was seriously asked those two questions. Those two questions made it seem incredibly real because it's just, it's not something you should ask the child of somebody who's been murdered. It's just not something, unless you're the Menendez brothers and that's a whole different gig. There was just no way that I, I, I it, it, that was the, the, that was the brutal moment in the whole thing where I knew this was awful, just awful what was happening. The other thing that happened is it went public. And everyone knew about it. Everybody, we were in, we lived in a small town, Ventura, small, Santa Paula, where we grew up is even smaller, they're close to each other, like bedroom communities to one another. Everybody knew I'd been a suspect. That's when you realize how the hell it is in a small town. There's nowhere to hide. Everybody knew. It was like, I could tell it was in the gossip. I could tell people were talking about it. I spent thousands of dollars in therapy to get over this and I can't even tell you how many years sometimes I say the shame lasted decades sometimes I feel like it was one decade I think I do think I know what happened is that really having a daughter and being focused on parenting basically got me out of it when I was by myself for all those years which was um, until I was 38 so 20 years I absolutely wore this like a badge of shame absolutely it changed who I was it changed the choices I made it changed how I comported myself, both, both this being a suspect and then having it be public and having people know that, that I made a joke out of it. Um, nobody teaches you how to manage this kind of crap when you're a little kid. So it's not surprising to me, of course, you know, I made it worse for myself. That would be me, but that's okay. I, you know, I'm, I own that. Um, so the thing that helped me though is I this, this really great therapist and God knows I've been to some not really great therapist, but she turned to me 
at some point and she said, Jen, do you, what if I, what if I just changed the way you think about this? What if I just said, could it be your dad had mistreated you so significantly that you would have had absolute justification in killing him? And while that never would have happened, that I would have ever felt justified, because that's not how I think about the world and I don't like hurting anything, um, what it did do is it shifted the narrative. It suddenly made me from being the, uh, I'm going to cry again. It suddenly took the, the, the idea that I was so powerful that I could have killed them. Because if you think about that, that's really what that narrative is all about is that Jennifer was so bad and so powerful that she could have killed them. It changes that narrative to Jennifer had suffered through so much that it wouldn't surprise me if she had. And, and that was important. That was an important shift. Because the reality is, is it was much more like that. I was a kid. I never really got treated like a kid my whole childhood. I was always the oldest. I was always the one who knew how things worked. I was always go ask Jen. She knows how to figure it out. Your sister will help you. Jen can help you in class. Um, Jen was asked to publicly speak for her dad because I could, I showed up well and spoke well at public events. I knew how to solve problems. I was helping my mom do her taxes when I was 13, right after the divorce. Like I didn't get to be a kid. It's very it was very rare that I ever got to be a kid. I was working from age 13 on because I liked work and I was competent. So the part that's hard, the part that's, that goes with the victim part, and that's weird now that I think as a 58-year-old, when I look at like my nephew, who's exactly the same age as I was when my parents got divorced, and I think, oh my God, he's a little kid. I never, ever, ever gave myself that grace and and the adults around me didn't either that just wasn't how it worked in the case of jenny smith is that she was always the one who could handle it who could take the punch who could not only take the punch but maybe go convict the bad guy like from the beginning so when my therapist flipped that narrative around that was super important that that required me to have empathy for my younger self and it required me to understand that all of us when you hold yourself responsible for crap when you're a kid and you, and you beat yourself up about it, you would never do that to your own children. You would never just be that hard on them, but we are really hard on ourselves. Okay, so flipping the narrative did make a big difference for me. Um, the reality is that on the inside, I still was crushed that someone, that anyone, and there was, I'm, I'm pretty sure more than one person, turned me into the police. I, I made a joke the other night on Twitter. It's like, oh my God, this case is going to be closed. I could FOIA the list of who turned me in as a suspect. I could actually find out who those people were now. Um, I'm, I'm only interested because I want to know their perspective. I don't want to talk to them. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to talk to them, but once I can find out who they are, I can understand the lens in which they saw my relationship with my dad and Charlene, and that would be really helpful because some people that saw my relationship with them were their best friends, Charlene's best friends. Some people that saw my relationship with, like my grandmother saw the relationship with her dad, and she always said that I was just being, that I just didn't have a chance. She's my favorite person. But she was very perceptive in that regard. And she would, uh, my mom said she often would walk around and go, y'all don't understand. This is just a child. So my grandma was great. Always had my back. Okay, stop this. Okay, so, all right. 
here's the deal though for me the idea that i could have killed them uh in an act of savagery was was awful and the fact that other people thought i could be capable of it was awful it was absolutely inconsistent with who i was and and my friends and i started making jokes about it at school i was like class president for two years and then the third and i worked in journalism and i um you know i was all about outing the truth even as a kid i had real jobs i was like the best babysitter in ventura county through youth employment because i i was assigned all the hard jobs including one where a kid pulled a gun on me um i had just this incredible reputation of just being um a good girl but also a very productive um hands-on person a young person who could make stuff happen so the idea that, that so could quickly so quickly could be thrown out the window and the people didn't see me for who i had been and who i was and were willing to accept this other narrative about me that i was somehow bad um was shocking to me as an 18 year old so i handled it the only way i know how that's why i still handle things but not quite as rakishly and badly but i used humor and again this is my dad he taught us how to use humor things that were ironic things that were um juxtaposed in a way that made no sense these were these were the things of of humor so not long after the murder um after the polygraph test all that stuff uh i decided to wear a tiny little stick on a necklace i'm looking because there's a necklace on my desk but i wore a tiny little stick on a necklace i want to say it just kind of hit right here and i'm talking about a stick like a little tiny twig you go out in the yard and get a little tiny twig and i put it on a necklace and for some reason my best friend and i thought that was so funny and i, I do remember the, the um, context of the joke which was it was so freaking ludicrous that i could have in any way lifted a fire log and hurt somebody with it I don't know a gun because I know I can't manage it. Like there are just things in this life you know you can't manage. Me wielding a log is one of them. And so the the necklace became hilarious to us. And it was definitely an inside joke, but I kept it on. And um, at any point in this, if you're listening and go, Jen, what the hell's wrong with you? Uh, I'm right there with you. I don't know what the hell is wrong with me. I, I, we were in free fall. We didn't go to therapy. We didn't anything. We were in free fall post-murder. Post and all the things that I knew had changed because because I graduated early. So I was really in free fall. So um, I wore that necklace with the little twig on it that was a log necklace around town. Um, I think the adults around me who loved me just said that's just jen just let her be um i know now it was really my way of embracing the shame i've really had become very clear about the idea of the you know the best defense is a good offense right if you know people are talking about you behind your back and if you know there's all this blah, 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 blah going on one of the best ways to disarm people when you're afraid they're going to say or think something bad about you is to be the first one to say it and i can tell you this because i'm a fat woman so it's very easy if i if i self-deprecate first i get the first blow right i can soften the blow by acknowledging my by having a fat joke or by doing something that that marginalizes me before you can marginalize me i believe that's absolutely what was in play with this necklace it was a way for me to run around and see the people I cared about and yet have a, a weird kind of way to disarm the conversation because then you see this and you go, oh my God, I guess we can talk about murder because you're wearing a log necklace. Remember, it's more than just me being a suspect. People didn't even want to talk about murder. That's a weird thing to talk about. Even now, 
40 years later, I'll have people call and go, I know this must supposed to be hard to talk about. And I'm like, my dudes, this is what I do. I talk about it. It's okay. It's how I heal. Like, it's okay. So I, I think that's what was going on, but I was no longer a student enrolled at Buena High School. I went to Buena down in Ventura. I graduated in, at the end of January with the early graduation, and I had signed up and was taking classes at Ventura College in March when Lennon and Charlene were killed. I don't even know if I ever went back. Somewhere there's a report card around here about that year in school, but I don't that semester, but I don't remember. All I know is I went back to Buena. And the good news is that because I had been there in leadership, I knew the Dean of Boys, I guess he was, but it was Bob Kuzar. Robert Kuzar was our leadership advisor. I, I know he's gone through life underappreciated. This man was amazing what he did with us and leadership. That we should have been a model for all schools. They should be doing what we did then. We absolutely we're aware of the political process. We did so much. We had cabinet meetings. We used Robert's Rules of Order. And this man was amazing. And he allowed me to come back and basically hang out in the student center, which is where leadership happened. It's also where the clubs came and went. It was kind of the place where all the, the action was, if you were one of the nerds that were into the school action. Um, that was me. I'm definitely a school nerd. He let me hang out there with my friends. He made it a safe place. But I made a mistake. I wore that stupid necklace to the school, and there was one woman at that school who hated me from the day I walked onto that campus. Um, because I tried to, as my friend Kari will say, I'm the one that wanted to change the school theme song from Hail to All Our Loyal Sons to Hail to All Our Loyal Ones. Yes, I was that person that said it's not that hard to make this not sexist. So I rubbed Lois Schaefer, Dean of Girls, the wrong way. There was nothing pleasant about this woman. I have not found anybody who thought she was pleasant. Um, I, I mind you, it's with our 40-year 40, 40 2020 glasses when we look back on time. But I haven't found anybody. that She was an unhappy person. She saw me with that necklace on. She called the police. The police came to campus. I got whisked away to the student activity center to meet with the police. The police took the necklace into evidence. And I have yet, but I'm going to now because I just remembered about this, I have yet to ask Cheryl Temple if that necklace is still in evidence. I suspect it is because there's a lot of other stuff that's still in evidence. So I might see that necklace again. And if I do, I'm going to put its picture on my website because you're going to see it's nothing except it turned out to be everything. Because of my stunt, my dumbass stunt of wearing that to school, I believe Lois Schaefer was successful in making sure that I didn't get Girl of the Quarter or Hall of Fame, which were the two big awards you get for service at the school. And honest to God, I'm still bitter about not being in Hall of Fame. Girl of Quarter, I could live with that, whatever. I don't care about that one. But the Hall of Fame, I served that school like a beast for three years or two and a half years. Um, it just so bums me out that that didn't happen. And I know Lois was the one that put the kibosh on it. <sighs> See, it's like therapy, but it's free because I'm just talking to you. Isn't that awesome? All right. Anyway, if we go back just for a minute, back to that polygraph test, you'll be happy to know I passed. Um, it would be it would be over a year later when I'd find out Charlene was raped. They didn't tell us that for until Jill Alsip's trial. It would be 20 years later when I'd find out that they weren't murdered in their sleep. That that was the that was the trope that was going around for 20 years in Ventura, which actually I think it's an odd kind of gift because I really didn't understand how violent it was until much much later. Um, and then of course it would be. 20 plus years later when we've learned that they were killed by a serial killer and not by anybody in our community. Um, 
taking the test was a bad thing and playing with the test was a bad thing. But um, in the, the probably the worst thing that happened that, that just put the old, what is that? Uh, Sign seal delivered the whole thing as how I, I don't even know the best metaphor for this because I just don't have it right now. But the thing that I did that probably um, made the biggest lasting impression is that I characterized the whole thing as being so dragnet. And that's exactly how it felt to me. It felt like the little men who get out of their little cars here in the heart of the city and they do their little police stuff and they don't really see the people. They're just busy moving people through a series of transactions. And as you might imagine, I still haven't lived that down. So, okay, that's the story of being a suspect. Don't ever be a suspect. It freaking sucks. It's life changing. It's awful. If I went through what I went through, I don't even imagine what Joe Alsip has gone through. I can't imagine ever being falsely accused because I have been and it sucks. And mine was for just a moment in time and it was still debilitating. But that stuff doesn't just shake off of you. And, and, that, and part of that's on us. We need to check ourselves. If people are suspects, we have to assume there's a certain amount of rigor going into an investigation where it's almost like why we wear our masks for the virus, right? We mask it, we mask ourselves because we might have the virus, not because you people might have it, because we might be having it to give to others. We kind of need to do that now when we, when we look at cases when people are suspects. There needs to be some rigor. We need to make sure that we're ruling out the, like, the, the unlikely suspects as well. Because we've all seen far too often in cases when the police pursue something well beyond their, well beyond what is reasonable to pursue, and in this case, Joe Alsip, for example, that ended up probably bankrupting the man. It certainly changed his reputation. And then, of course, we always judge the people based on how they behave once they're a suspect. And I'm going to tell you right now, all bets are off because it changes your behavior. You act like an idiot, like I did. I mean, anything could happen. Joe acted like an idiot because he was so euphoric that he got off. He didn't do it. He was operating from the same mindset I was, which is, this is freaking crazy. So sometimes now when you watch a suspect who's being questioned, you're not sure, look for the, this is batshit crazy reaction, because that will tell you faster than anything else. And especially if they're acting, it happens a lot in the TV shows where they're acting like kind of um, belligerent or like an asshole. It's because honestly, it's so bizarre. It's such, a, it's such an incongruous thought. You don't even know what to do with it. So it's absolutely changed the way I look at things going forward. I don't judge. I, if, if there's one thing I tried the hardest to do in addition to my authenticity, but, I, but it's, the judgment thing is more of a thing I have to actively work on every day, is that I try really hard not to judge. Because I've learned now, after 58 years of living, that we judge based on our own prejudices, our own assumptions, and our own limited information. And so often we don't have all the information. Um, and so often we have a lot of prejudice and bias in our own thinking. So I often talk about the lenses that we watch the world through. So whatever your lens is, think again and be willing to go, uh, you know, look, I'll just use a metaphor, be willing to clean the lenses of your perception, just like I clean the lenses of my glasses, such that you can see things more clearly or be open to things that you don't expect. There you go. There's uh, wisdom in a can with my god-awful podcast about what it was like to be a suspect. It sucked. Okay, I, I'm going to try to get one more podcast out before my um, statement. Let's hope I can do that. And I thank you very much for listening today.
Hey guys, it's Jen. And if you enjoy spending time with me, check out the Life Coach Pod. It's a life positive show that you can watch on YouTube or listen to just like any other podcast. I toggle between information I research and share and then interviews with life coaches and others who are doing their best to move us forward. I think I have something for everyone. Don't let the pandemic get you down. Visit lifecoachpod.com and subscribe. Regular people, real wisdom. That's the Life Coach Pod. Resume life better. Venture Highway in the sun.